0: My goal is always just to follow the story wherever it takes me and explore as many possibilities as I can, you know, conceive of and to just go down every trail. Hi, I'm Claire Santamaw and you're entering a world gone good.
1: Well, hello, my name is Steve, and this is my post-COVID voice, and this is World Gone Good, all these things, the podcast where we spread some good around to make the rest of this place not so shitty. Two on the nose? Too bad. Deal with it. Help us spread some good yourself by sharing us with your friends and also subscribing, rating, and reviewing our show right where you are listening now. It takes but a few of your good seconds. It helps new people find us and live a gooder life. And as always, for any and all these things, we say thank you. Okay, so here's today's question. What's good about a crime? Not the question you were expecting, was it? We are obsessed with crime. Whether it's the January 6th investigation, I know, sorry, they were all just visiting the Capitol and taking a tour, no crime there, wink, wink, to crime series and crime podcasts. to my personal favorite, Heart to Heart, we love a good crime. But why? Why is that? While you mull that over, Take a listen to this.
0: Have you ever had a story that you just can't get out of your head? Claire Sanima here, creator of Final Days on Earth, a true crime deep dive podcast. My first season explores the life and death of Damian Hurt, a college wrestler who disappeared after a party. How long do you think they were in the back room, you know? No, I don't, I don't remember seeing him come back out. My second season is on the 2002 unsolved murder of Jennifer Harris.
1: When someone disappears, you have to look at who would benefit from their disappearance.
0: The secrets in Jennifer's case have been hidden for decades. But someone must know something. Maybe even you. Join me for Season 2 of Final Days on Earth. A deep dive into a cold case. Can you help solve Jennifer's murder? Listen now, everywhere you get podcasts.
1: Claire Sanema is a journalist who's worked with CBS News, 60 Minutes and 48 Hours. She is the producer and host of Last Days on Earth. And together, we two podcasters are joining forces to find some answers and take a good fight out of crime. One of my favorite things is to have a fellow podcaster on the show with me because it's just like we're in our own little bubble, our own little world in some ways. And so, Claire, you are with me, and this is a topic that I have been wanting to explore. So we're going to start wide and go in good. Here's the question. It's really wide. Tell me, what is good about crime?
0: (laughs) So, I mean, that's a challenging question, right, right from the start. But, you know, I think what's good about crime is that everyone who endures um, a crime has to find a way to overcome what they've faced and whether that's the, um, you know, from the victim's perspective, from the law enforcement, from attorneys Um, from defendants. You know, um, it's a traumatic event to go through a crime. Uh, I typically cover murders. And so, you know, it's an understatement to call it traumatic, right? It is literally life altering, life ending, but people find a way to move on from it. And I have been so inspired by people who find, you know, the silver linings, a new lease on life, they find a reason to keep living. And those stories, you know, they keep me going and they show me the triumph of the human spirit and that we really are resilient people. And, you know, if someone can overcome um, having a family member murdered, having a family member accused of murder, having a family member commit murder um, you know, then, then the other things that we face in life kind of pale in comparison. And so for all those reasons, you know, I find the crime space to actually be a very, um, you know, a, a very positive space in a lot of ways. Now, um, you know, I don't have to tell you about all the ways it's terrible, but the way I look at it is when you're a crime reporter or a crime producer, you know, you're not, creating more crime, but you're trying to make sense of the madness. And a lot of people that I've worked with, you know, they appreciate that um, tact. And so that's really, you know, where I find my place in it all.
1: Now, your background is as a reporter or a producer, because you've like spent time with 48 hours, 60 minutes, CBS News. Where did you fall for all the for all those jobs?
0: Yeah, so I started out um in local journalism as a print reporter working at a community newspaper and you know really thought that newspapers were where I would be my whole career. But uh the state of the industry really um caused me to to shift and to go where the jobs were and I ended up in uh from going from local newspapers to um to working for a digital media startup, uh, a news website uh, that's called Culture Map, and I worked for the Dallas site as it as it got launched, and then started covering crime, and ended up um, doing a, a story on a complicated murder investigation um, that was actually a it was thought to be a suicide, and it was it was actually a staged home invasion that was a, a cold blooded murder. And so I covered that story and it got the attention of all the true crime shows. And I ended up working with 48 Hours on that back in 2014. And as I worked with them on that story, um, as a consultant, I kind of caught the TV bug and I started working in television for 48 Hours um, and then eventually went on to do some things with 60 Minutes and... Um, just spent about eight years with CBS News and then um, had started my podcast um, because I got interested in a, a case that didn't fit in the, the TV formula, um, you know, the nice little one episode box that just didn't fit in it. So I ended up doing a podcast and that was the first season of Final Days on Earth that came out in twenty twenty one. This year, 2022, I did my second season of Final Days on Earth, and I actually stepped away from 48 Hours CBS News um, to focus on the podcast and some other independent projects that I'm I'm looking at.
1: So when you do this kind of thing and you have to follow a crime, especially like the Damien Hurd story, because I have listened to that, you have so many interviews with so many people. How do you get these interviews? How do you reach out to them? Did you have a a summary of some sort of a, a police report that you worked from, or are you starting from scratch and having to put the whole puzzle together? That's the part I'm fascinated by.
0: Yeah, so the very first thing I always do whenever I get interested in a case is read everything I possibly can that's already out about it um because I always want to know as much information. As exists in the public domain, so I'll read you know every newspaper article, every if there's TV stories, you know anything I will read and find out about, and then I go to the law enforcement agencies and I do public records requests and I get everything released that is releasable by law, and I go through that. Um, the Damien Heard case had a good bit of initial media treatment. Um, you know, Colorado covered it. Texas media covered it. It was very much like hit and run stuff. Um, but it was still useful for the the timeline of the case. And and um, to see also who had spoken out before, um, you know, of his friends and family. And then once I got all the police records, it was gangbusters because it was uh, 187 page police report. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. I, I can't even remember the exact number of interviews off the top of my head, but it was like forty something interviews that the police had done, and they released all that, so I was able to go through all of that and then um you know i had I had been a local news reporter at the time that Damien's story happened, so I had interacted with it that way, and so Damien's father, Gary, knew me from my days, you know reporting on the case um in that capacity, and so I reached back out to him and said you know i've been thinking about doing a podcast on this case um how would you feel about that you know what what do you think we'd be revisiting it all again is that you know something you'd want to do um and so he thought about it and talked to you know the rest of his family and and then you know said you know we're we're on board we want to do it and so i have to have that buy in from the victim's family um because i, I don't want to be In a space that they don't want me. And I want, I want to know that, that they want me to, to do all the digging that I'm going to have to do. And so I always, I start with whatever exists and all the documents I can get my hands on. And then I go to the victim's family, um, and, and make sure that, that they want me to do the story. And then, then we're off to the races.
1: It's interesting because it's almost like you're creating a relationship again with them, but you're diving in deeper because the whole thing about a podcast which we talk about on here is you know, there's a relationship going on even with the audience. They want to go a little bit deeper. It's not just an article. It's not just a 48 hours segment, right? And
0: Absolutely. And yeah. I think
1: that's a big part of it. So speaking in terms of talking with the family like, that's the part I found fascinating when you were talking with his dad and how much his dad was sharing. Yeah. Was, did you do those interviews face-to-face? They sounded like, were they were they on the phone? It sounded to me like they were on the phone.
0: So they were on the phone. So I've met Gary face-to-face many times. We've gone to lunch. I've gone to his wrestling uh, tournaments that he, you know, one of the um, benefits that he does for Damien. I've gone to a couple of those. Um, you know, I've met... Um, damien's aunt you know we've we've done things in person but the interviews so i do a lot of interviews Sure. um you know so i think gosh if i had to go back and look i probably did um you know six different interviews with da- with damien's dad maybe more um and so we would do them on He he owns a body shop and so he would do them like when he took his lunch break or like stepped <laughs> away from the shop if there were not a lot of people because it was just logistically to try to get together in person that many times sure. would be really challenging. And you're also and, uncovering yeah.
1: things. You're all, you're like uncovering things as you're building your own story.
0: Yes. So you have to yeah. go back, right? So yeah, I kind of developed this idea that, you know, I'm going to take these interviews in little bite-sized pieces. And so I would say, all right, this is the interview that is going to cover, you know, Damien's background. And so this is going to be all about what he was like growing up, what he was like up until the point, you know, that he left for college. Um, And so we would do that interview and we would usually talk for about an hour each time um, about that topic. And then, you know, I would also interview other people, friends and other family members, you know, about that period of time. And then I would go write... That episode, and then, um, you know, come back and do my second round of interviews uh, about the next bite-sized piece in the story, and and cover it like that. So it's it's a really satisfying way as a storyteller to approach things because you get to go as deep as you want to. You know, um, the the beauty of the podcast is that you're not limited, um, really. You know, with any time constraints. I tried to be reasonable, you know, and, and not make it longer than it had to be. But it was it was good to be able to say like, well, if it, it needs to be, you know, six episodes for the season, it can be six. If it needs 10, 12, I ended up doing 15 for Damien's season because um, I just kept finding other things I wanted to explore.
1: And why Damien and why Jennifer?
0: Yeah, great question. You know, I... I really felt like when I started the Final Days on Earth franchise, I wanted to look at cases where there were unresolved issues, where someone within the case was saying justice has not been served. And so, I wanted to look at cases where um, you know, it could be a variety of things, uh but I had thought, you know, broad strokes, suicide, murder accident that we have all these questions about this case. And then we have someone within the case who says, you know, the established narrative is not acceptable to me. I don't think that's what really happened. And so Damien's case, you know, was the first one and kind of my my test subject for, you know, the whole concept and does this work. And it's a really um for me, it's it's been a really good um, way to approach, you know, selecting a case and then approach the storytelling as well. And so, for for Damien's season, you know, the question was, was this a suicide? Was this an accident, or was this murder? And so, I talked to people who believed all of those things. Um, and I looked at the evidence. You know, I would put my, you know, different hats on and say, okay, if I'm thinking that this is a suicide. Does this evidence make sense? What how how does this fit into a narrative for how this could be a suicide? And sort of put all those pieces together and then say, "Okay, you know, how what about an accident? Could this be an accident?" And and you know, repeat the process. And my goal is always just to follow the story wherever it takes me and explore as many possibilities as I can, you know, conceive of and to just go down every trail. And so that's really what I feel like I did with Damien's story. I feel like I got a lot of answers in his case, but there are still more methods of exploration and inquiry that I would like to see investigators do that, that I can't do. Um, and I can't control you know, whether or not they will do that. But I've laid those out for what I would, would like to see happen in his case. And then with Jennifer's uh, case, which is season two, The Life and Death of Jennifer Harris, hers is an unsolved cold case murder investigation from 2002. And her case started out when she was a missing person, where her family and even the authorities thought, you know, potentially she had harmed herself. Jennifer's, you know, friends and family when she first went missing... Their main concern was that she took off, you know, and didn't want to be found, and possibly had hurt herself um, because she was going through a very difficult time um, and had a lot of stressors in her life and a lot of conflict. Um, and it was conceivable, you know, that 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 could have been the reason why she was missing. And then, you know, it takes about a week before her body is found, and once it's found, it's uh, stripped naked and it's in the Red River. And there's talk of well, she loved to swim. She was a lifelong swimmer. She was a certified lifeguard. You know, she loved to swim in the lakes and in the rivers. Could she have gone swimming? And this is some kind of accident. They said, you know, this is not a natural death. Um, you know, she doesn't have water in her lungs. Now there are scenarios, and I did explore scenarios where you can die accidentally through drowning and not have water in your lungs, but. Considering all the other factors, um, the fact that she was naked, the fact that her clothes and purse have never been found, the fact that her car was about seven miles away, it led the investigators and the medical examiner to rule her case a homicide. And it's been investigated as a murder from, you know, just – sorry, that was a big collar shake from me. My-
1: <laughs> Don't worry. Hazel's, um, Hazel's laying right next to me snoring. You're good. That's you're good. <laughs>
0: so funny. yeah yeah my dog rebel just just curled up at my feet so um so it's been investigated as a murder ever since the body was found and it's never really you know been in any other possibility that it was a suicide or accident once they found the body they they ruled the case a homicide and so um that was very interesting to me and it was also a situation where there were immediately two persons of interest in her case, and it seemed like they were going to solve it. Like the police were very public with their belief that that they were close to an arrest, that this case would be solved. And at the time that Jennifer went missing and was killed, the jurisdiction that she was in, Fannin County, they bragged that they did not have a single unsolved homicide or missing persons case that had not been concluded. Uh, They didn't have a missing person they hadn't found, and they didn't have a murder that they hadn't made an arrest on. And so they believed that Jennifer's case would be like all the others and that they would be able to solve it. And 20 years later, it's never been solved.
1: So anyone who's listened to this podcast from the beginning or has listened to the first episode knows I begin the whole thing with my love of heart to heart, the old uh, detective series from the 1980s, late 70s, early 80s. You're too young. Look it up. Uh, okay. Stephanie Powers Jonathan, uh, and, uh, and uh, Robert Wagner played Jennifer and Jonathan Hart, this married couple who just happened to solve crimes. They weren't detectives. They just, he was a businessman and she was a reporter like you. And Just happened if murders just sort of happened to them. But it's interesting to me, and I bring them up for a reason. I bring, you know, this back to you, because crime podcasts are so popular. The genre itself, it almost has taken on a life of its own in the podcast world. And what is the good of a crime podcast?
0: You know, I think it, it really lets people have their own voice in the story. A lot of times victims' families feel like they are silenced because part of the judicial process has to have a good bit of separation between, you know, law enforcement and the victim's family and what they know about the case. And, uh, you know, it's it's there for a reason and it's part of, you know, the the due um process in the justice system. But the victims' families often really want to tell their story in a public way, in a unfiltered way, and the podcast allows them to do that. I mean, I see journalism as a public service, and I see true crime podcasts as the voice of the victims. I really always strive to be that kind of show. There are all kinds of shows, uh, all kinds of true crime shows, and and um, you know mission statements and everything else. So um, you know I I know that it takes all kinds, and not everyone has has the same goals. But for me, you know that's what that's what it's all about.
1: But do you think there's a certain amount of voyeurism going on?
0: Absolutely. I think you know when I worked at Forty Eight Hours, you know we would look at our demographics for the show: middle class, upper middle class living very sheltered lives and thinking, this could never happen to me. And so the, the idea that they would want to watch stories of grisly crimes and you know everything else, it's, it's kind of surprising. You would think that you wouldn't want to, but there's something about human nature that kind of wants to know what is the worst that could happen? What is really out there? You know what? What evil is lurking, and I think that does appeal to a lot of people. You know, women are traditionally more the consumer of true crime than men. It skews a little bit female, and women which is are also, so
1: surprising to me.
0: Well, women it's, are also the victims of crimes, more right? Exactly, exactly. Right. You know, so there might be
1: yeah, there, there might be some prote- you know pre protection going on, or just you know seeing it. You know, what would I do? putting yes. myself in the situation.
0: Yes, I mean, I'm one of those women that before I worked in true crime, I was extremely interested in true crime. And it's it for me, you know, if I step back to before I became, you know, a journalist, I was interested in it because I would see, you know, the women's pictures in the newspaper and on television that they were missing, that their bodies had been found, that they had been killed by, you know, an intimate partner and it was frightening, but also extremely intriguing to me. How could this happen? That woman looks like me. How could she right. end up like this? And so there is a little bit of um, you know, self-I don't know, self-centered interest or um, but yeah, I mean you see yourself in the victims and you're curious, how did this happen to them? And and I'm I'm okay. You know, I'm not in threat of my life. And I I've also talked to a lot of women who say, yeah, I watch it because I want to know like gosh, you know, are there anything, you know, and I'm not trying to blame the victim, but you know, are there any things that I'm doing that that you know, could could put me in harm's way?
1: Here's something I've always wanted to ask a journalist. We always see in the movies and television that the reporters and law enforcement don't get along. Get out of here, reporters. You know, it's always, get them out of here. Uh, did we, we're trying to solve a crime. But do reporters and law enforcement get along?
0: So great question. Um, I would say typically it is pretty adversarial. They see us as a distraction. They see us as another thing they have to do um, whenever they would just as soon be straight Investigating crimes, and they already have so much paperwork to do, and here we are sending them open records requests, and you know other things that they really just don't like to deal with. You know, there are certain law enforcement people who see the value of the media and want to engage the media, want to put information out in the press, um, you know, really use it as a tool for their investigation. Um, or see it as part of their duty as a police officer, because we are also citizens. We're also the public, and we're informing the public. It's not as comically adversarial as it is in the movies, sure. but they generally don't like us. That That is true. That is accurate. Um, and if you're talking about things in movies where journalists are portrayed, it is my absolute pet peeve that practically every female journalist that has ever been portrayed in television or movies sleeps with her sources that <laughs> drives me up the wall that the drives... only time
1: it's okay is lois lane and superman i'll give that's you the, i'll
0: give you the superman exception <laughs> right because there are no real uh supermen so exactly that's the it's only of it's only okay in uh yeah in that <laughs> in that situation if you actually meet superman okay i i'll give it to you but it it doesn't happen that's not what respectable journalists do that's not how we get our information that's not how you develop sources and it's just become this really pervasive trope and i it really really irritates me because it it not only strikes at the ethical um you know parts of the profession but just as a person the idea that if you meet a female journalist that she's going to just sleep with you for information. It's it's this crazy idea that's been put out and repeated so many times that it's like, I mean, I remember, now that I'm working in podcasting, you know, it's a lot, there's a lot more um, remote things, but I mean, I would have like the least sexy possible work clothes um, and I was like, I'm trying to appear asexual because I don't want people to think that there's any any other reason that I'm interested in talking to you other than my job. And it was just like, I felt like I had to overcompensate, you know, because it's like- You're like
1: just trying to blend in. You're like wearing camouflage, almost like they can't see you.
0: I mean, I would wear like <laughs> cotton pants and a collared shirt, like something sure. a woman doesn't even want to wear, right? Just because sure. I'm like, please don't look at me as like that kind of- um journalists, you know i just I just want you to see a journalist and um but yeah it's it's that's one of the things that's in I love journalism movies you know i I really enjoy seeing um journalist journalistic stories portrayed in investigations, and there's a lot that they get right, but the thing that they consistently get wrong is that female journalists sleep with their sources it It doesn't happen in in my world i have i i I do not know of a single journalist that has ever done that and i know tons of journalists and you would lose your job number 1 and you would never be respected through you know the industry it would it's like the unforgivable sin so the idea that that happens on such a regular basis it just really uh irritates me to see that repeated in hollywood but um i guess that's just the the whole Hollywood effect of of anything. I'm sure, um, you know, there's tons of complaints for any professional that's portrayed um, repeatedly in entertainment. You know, I I just only know about the ones that's about journalists because that's what I am.
1: Sure. Now, let me ask you this, a question that I ask a lot of our guests. If you could go back in time and talk to 10-year-old, 11-year-old Claire, what would you say to her?
0: Oh, so that's a really good one, too. Um, you know, I was one of those kids that knew what I wanted to do when I was ten or eleven. I actually had a neighborhood newspaper called Kids News that I wrote with a friend uh down the street and we would report on things in our neighborhood and then we would make Xerox copies of our handwritten. Amazing. Uh yeah, it's it's pretty pretty cute. We'd make Xerox copies of our handwritten stories and drawings as well. And um, and then we would sell them door to door for 10 cents and we sold them for 10 cents, not because it was 1955, but because we saw that the Houston Chronicle, which was the big paper where we lived, was 25 cents. And we were like, well, we can't charge as much as the Houston Chronicle or more. So, you know, being, right. you know, <laughs> right. we we're trying to be reasonable here. So we charged 10 cents and it was the funniest thing because, of course, you knock on the door, you're these Cute little, you know, precocious kids selling your newspaper for ten cents. So every pretty much everybody would give us like a dollar, and we thought like we were in the money. Um, but yeah, so I always knew it. So I think ten or eleven year old Claire, you know, I would say you're on the right track. You know what you want to do, and you know don't let anybody um, tell you that that it's not going to work out or that it's not a worthwhile career because um, this is this is what you love and and you know, go do it. And, and I'm, I'm glad that I started young with journalism and, and stuck with it. Um, there's a lot of people today that are like, journalism's dead. You cannot, you know, create a, a career in, in media or in journalism. And I love talking to budding young journalists and, you know, in, in grade school, in high school, in college, um, you know, just starting out in their careers. I love talking to them and, and encouraging them and saying, like, you can absolutely do this. Like, you can absolutely make a career in journalism. It's not going to look the way that you think it's going to look. I thought I'd be working in newspapers my whole life. Um, you know, and I I spent <laughs> two years at a newspaper. So, you know, but but there is a way to build a, a career in journalism if if you love, you know, telling stories and you love reporting um, you'll find a place to do it.
1: We close these shows with three questions. Don't panic. You know the answers. The first one is so easy. I always say that. Where can people find you? Where can people find your podcast? Plug away.
0: So Final Days on Earth, you can find it on Apple, Spotify, Good Pods, Podcast One, your favorite podcast player. Uh, if you just search for Final Days on Earth, it should come right up. And both seasons one and two are available now
1: where do people follow you?
0: So I'm on Twitter, mostly. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram, but I'm not very proficient on either one of those. But I am there. I have a presence. Um, You can, you can, you know, search for my name, Claire Sanima, or you can search for Final Days on Earth. I have pages uh, for my uh, show as well.
1: Now, before we ask the last of questions, let's talk about your last name. Okay, yeah, that's uh, a and, and the pronunciation of it because that was that like that, that, that threw me when I first started listening to your podcast. but go ahead.
0: yeah, a lot of people think it's like Sandoval or something Saint
1: Saint Amant.
0: right. When they hear it, they think I'm saying Sandoval, but whenever right. they see it it's Saint Amont And I live in Texas, so everybody who sees it says Saint Amont. Um, my favorite mispronunciation is whenever people run it all together and they say it which sounds like Damn it. <laughs> and it it's also like a, a curse word to me to hear people mispronounce my name, butcher it so badly. Um, so that always cracks me up. But it's it's a French last name. And it uh, it I always say it rhymes with Panama. So Sanama rhymes with Panama is probably the easiest pronunciation guide. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's got that ST period. You know, there's lots of saints. There's like you know, different St. John is a common, you know, sort of last name. And um, there's even some St. Clairs, which you know, Claire being my first name. But um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's a tricky one, especially in uh, Texas and <laughs> in Louisiana. There's actually a Santa Ma, Louisiana. So everybody knows how to pronounce it there. Um, but being in Texas and then having the podcast that goes uh, globally uh, worldwide, a- I get a lot of um, surprise uh, you know, looks whenever people see it written for the first time and hear it pronounced and wonder how those two things can possibly go together.
1: Our last two questions can go back to anything we already talked about or anything you want to say. Question number one is who inspires you?
0: Oh man, that's uh you know, I'm, I'm always inspired by other investigative journalists. I love, um, you know, the work that's being done um, you know, in the podcast space, um, as well as like print and, and television, you know, journalists that um that are always uncovering new things. Um, you know, a lot of the um people that I I look up to, um, you know, I follow uh their their stories and, and anytime like a new story comes out. I'm like, oh my gosh, I know it's gonna be good, you know, with with, with that byline. And um, you know, I, I guess since I've been in the podcast space, I've really um I've really dug into, you know, different investigative podcasts that I think um, you know, are, are making such a difference um and, and really have um pushed their cases to the next level. Um, you know, one that comes to mind is probably Payne Lindsay. Who has Tinderfoot TV and he did up and vanished, um, which is a, a a podcast series, and it uh, looked at um, the Tara Grinstead murder, which at the time was unsolved, no arrests, and through his podcast, they actually ended up making arrests in that case for the first time, and um, you know that that case has since gone to trial, and to me, that's that's just a a very um, you know, just 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 like an incredible outcome to to have that happen. So that that's definitely, um, definitely someone who inspires me.
1: And the final question is not even a question; it's a statement. You can finish it any way you want. It goes like this: Tell me something good.
0: Oh man, something good. Tell me something good. So I'll probably have to go to my my son. You know, I, I have a a six year old son and he probably tells me something good every day and and makes it um just fun makes can make anything fun um gosh i'm trying to think of my latest and greatest story from him um man you know he uh he said about summer lately he said every day in the summer feels like a holiday and i just thought that was a great snapshot of childhood that, you know, is today a holiday? No, it's just a day in the summer. And he was like, every day feels like a holiday in the summer. And I just, I remember that feeling as a kid. And, and I just, I just love seeing that, you know, through his eyes and, and just getting to be that excited to wake up in the morning.
1: Thank you, Claire, for sharing your good. Go listen to Final Days on Earth, seasons one and two, wherever you pod best, like where you are listening to me right now. Next time on World Gone Good.
0: Passion Project sounds like a cliche
1: until you actually are doing it. And it's when you're doing it, when you find something and you go, wow, this is really what I was meant to do. This is really what I love. I don't find it it's to be a chore Every time I do it, I'm like, oh, I should do this more. It's not like, oh, God, i got to finish with this. I just want to do it, and then I save an animal, and I connect it with the right person, and it feels good, and they feel good, and it just sort of snowballs, and you think, yeah, this is what I was meant to do. Ricardo Franco runs the Dexter Foundation, where they swoop in and save dogs in shelters that no one else wants. I have mentioned Ricardo before and the oh-so-good work she does several times on the pod, and now I got her here to tell us her good story herself, find out all they do and all you can do yourself to support animals in your own community and support the Dexter Foundation. Until then, be good.